Friday Lunchtime Lectures at the Open Data Institute. Hello everyone and welcome to the Open Data Institute. We're here today to explore how contemporary dance is actually engaging with uh, new um, innovations in the technological field. And uh, we will hear about um, um, real life examples and we will be exploring the question of ownership. Um, I'm Annalisa and I'm working in the commercial team here at UDI uh, and today we will be hearing about these real life examples from uh, Scott de la Junta uh, who is here with us today. Uh, Scott is a professor of dance uh, at the Center for Dance Research uh, at Coventry University and is the co-director of uh, Motion Bank at Mainz University of Applied Science. Uh, before we start um, our lunchtime lecture, I just would like to do a bit of housekeeping and remember um, how this uh, lecture is structured. Um, we will have um, uh, 20 minutes, so half an hour of lecture time, and then we will open the floor to uh, questions, both from our guests here, but also from our uh, web audience. Um, so I will be passing around the mic so that everyone can hear us from home as well. Um, and we really encourage our web audience to engage with us on Twitter with the hashtag um, open, uh, ODI Fridays. ODI Fridays, thank you. So I will pass it to Scott now. Thank you, Annalise. Okay, all right. Uh, <coughs> thanks, uh, thank you for coming, and I'm, uh, thank you to the ODI for the invitation. Thank you to Hannah for helping sort of set that up. And the other Hannah, there's two here. Um, uh, as was mentioned, I'm going to I'm going to talk about some projects initially and try to lead you towards some new ideas that I'm exploring, which are kind of I just said to Giles sitting here, a little bit of a reboot on some of the trajectory of the past 15 years or so. And I and I think that this is an interesting context at ODI to try out some of these ideas. So by the end, I'll be in an unknown space. So I'll just be looking to share some ideas and get some impressions from you. But initially, I'm going to present a couple of projects I'm pretty familiar with. So in that sense, I'm in a, a fairly known space. And those are projects that were initiated sort of in the late 90s into the 2000s involving choreographers, dance artists who were interested in sharing their ideas, their processes more widely with the public and with other disciplines. And these are three principles that I would say were um, pretty much overlap all of the projects. So the first one I've already mentioned, they wanted to sort of document and they wanted to share their, what they called, referred to as choreographic ideas with audiences and other disciplines. And then this crucial idea that that constituted a kind of knowledge, embodied knowledge, tacit knowledge, dance knowledge. This was very much in the mix. But um, dance is ephemeral in that sense it's, always disappearing, it's always becoming, it's always disappearing, it's always here and then gone. It's also, you could think of it that as part of its tacit, it's embodied, it's collaborative, it's performative. So it's actually, from a certain perspective, difficult to document and share those kinds of ideas outside of the direct experience of either moving together or, um, or watching people move. But there, in the late, in the mid-90s and then Emerging more in the 2000s, there was a, an explicit interest in exploring the potential for computer-aided design, digital media to document and communicate these ideas. And now I'm going to show you a couple of examples where the, the, the digital, the digitization aspect is what really is being explored with a view that it can do something kind of unique for, for dance. Some of you might be familiar with this and probably several of you wouldn't be necessarily. I'm going to play this video clip which shows a piece created by a choreographer named William Forsyth, based in Frankfurt, Germany at the time. It's around, I think it premiered around 2000. It's called One Flat Thing Reproduced. And as you see, it involves a, a set choreography. So the choreography is set. There's some small improvisational bits, but generally it's set. And Forsyth was interested in helping audiences understand an abstract piece of choreography because Audiences often would express, might express some confusion if it doesn't have a narrative or something. And he thought he could do that using a technique he'd used previously in the, two, in the 1990s by drawing lines on top of video 
to illustrate relationships and structures in the dance. So I'll tell you now that the dance has uh, three choreographic structures that they then analyze and they're going to visualize, and I'll show you that in a moment. One of them is a cueing system. So the cueing system is what you'll see the dancers stopping and waiting and actually looking and waiting for a cue. And they're either cueing a bunch of people or one person's being cued by a bunch of people. And that, so the cueing system is one of the structures and the other, another one is alignments. So that's when things, legs and arms and heads and things move sort of together in space. And the other sort of small variations on themes that I won't talk about much. So this is the recording. Um, it's one recording of the work, and there was also a camera from above recording the work. And then the material was sent to Ohio State University, where a team of uh, designers and animators and dance researchers started to develop a website called Synchronous Objects, which I'll sh show you in a moment. But I'm just going to go to a next slide, which shows you one of the um, films with animations on top that shows you the alignments down here. So that's one of the choreographic systems. But it's interesting to note that none of this was done automatically. This was all, man in a sense, manually done because there was no automatic kind of recognition computationally, you know, kind of analyzing the movement in the space. It was done by inviting the dancers who know the systems to sit and watch the video and mark when things are happening, like an alignment, a cue response, a cue given. So the data for this work is actually all in the spreadsheet, in a sense. And that's manually created. Of course, uh, you know, the animators who are drawing those lines, they'll use some algorithms to help smooth and things like that. But fundamentally, this is about people looking at the video and explaining on the basis of what they know from their bodies, having done it, to people who are trying to understand that so that they can create this visualization. Now, the other thing, once you have the data, and this gets into the, once you have that as data, you can do other things with it. So you can visualize things differently. You can visualize, here's a visualization of the cueing system. Now, that doesn't look like the dance, but you could arguably, it is a representation of the dance. In one shot, the time, temporality is removed, but you get a sense of who gives cues and who receives cues. So for example, you can see that David receives no cues. Georg gives the most cues, things like that. And that's only possible because of the work done to kind of create this data set, right? The other thing they did is that they created some kind of do-it-yourself choreographic tools like this one here that would allow you to explore a little bit some of the parameters that would generate movement and generate alignments and, and uh, things in the space. So little tools that allowed you to kind of learn by doing it on the website. I'll show you one more screen here. So this is the queuing system. Again, graphics drawn on top of the video. Give you a sense of where people are waiting. Pretty soon Chris sitting right there is going to give a bunch of cues. And one of the, que the questions you see up there was one asked by Foresight at the beginning, how can we teach audiences to see this kind of structure? And down here is another little tool that allows you to kind of explore that queuing system, varying you know, things like accumulation rate things like that, so that you can kind of learn through doing somehow. And one of the things that Forsyth also said, which has uh, also motivated myself and others working on this kind of project, is the idea that you could create resources people could study uh, to understand dances. So that notion of really studying, spending time with it, repeated viewing. So generally, the ephemerality issue becomes uh, uh, less of an issue because you're able to look again and look again and explore. So the website, um, we could look at it later if we want to. I think I'll move to this material so I can get to where I think I'm trying to go with this now, which is a little bit different. So if you go to the website, it'll open up a page where it shows all the kind of experiments. You see the, some of the tools I mentioned. You'll see some of the visualizations. And the, the design principle here is that you're moving kind of from the dance to more and more abstract representations of the dance. And of course, every every step of abstraction, you kind of, one of the questions might be, well, how far does it go before it's really somehow no longer the dance or no longer somehow related to the bodies involved? But we didn't ask those kinds of questions then. This is a little bit 
more present for me now, and I'll explain that later. So it was really just an experiment with proliferating a lot of stuff, visualizing, that are all kind of derived from the data that was derived from the dance. And you get, this no, you get another idea that shows up here, and also we'd sometimes talk about abstracting the data from the dance. And I, that's something I'm now really questioning, how, how, what the implication of thinking that way is. Um, so producing data to objects. So for the first time, some earlier projects didn't do this so much, but for the first time we really have kind of data that people can sort of compute on, probe, and do things with. So we, keep, we kept working, and I'm going to show you then another example, one more, with Deborah Hay, in part because it contrasts the other one so much, but also because we did more automatic processing with this particular one. So Deborah Hay is now, I think, 72 or 3, and this image is in 2011 or something. She's been making, um, American-based choreographer, been making dances for many, many, many years, and developing her, her own unique way of approaching making dances. And she always uh, works, ha did work at that time with a score, a written score, that would kind of emerge through her process of making a solo. So she made a solo called No Time to Fly, and she had a written score. And for our project, she gave that score to three dancers who are familiar with how she works. And by that I mean that they understand the, the way in which the score gives them a kind of instructions. If you opened up that score, you would be You'd see poetic language, you'd see little narrative chunks, you know, I mean, it would be readable, you would, but you wouldn't necessarily know what to do with it in terms of making your own translation. But these are dancers who have worked with it for a long time. And so their experience with her methods, that oftentimes they refer to it as if she's choreographed their perception because she gives them ways of thinking about how to keep the focus of their attention on something in space, either audiences or themselves. They each received this score three months before they came to our project to get filmed, and they practice it every day for three months. And then this might give you a little insight. The way they describe it is the choreography kind of shows up for them. So the choreography doesn't kind of exhibit, it doesn't, it's not prefigured in that sense, to use a word from last Monday, but it's, um, it's something they sort of discover through doing it over and over and practicing it. So it's a very different way of thinking about composing a work from the previous one. It also means, because Deborah doesn't provide any movement instructions, so she doesn't tell them where to be precisely in space or how long to do a section. There are sections in here. There are about 27 different sections, so it's linear, so it has a linear structure. But she doesn't give them any directions. They make those kinds of decisions every time they perform. And it might be different, it might be the same, but it's, it's really um, based on a a different kind of decision-making process. Um, that means that we couldn't record just one version like we did with the previous one, because the previous one, you could say that's the work. It's, it's work. For this one, we, we realized that we wanted to try to capture the variability that would, be, that would emerge from this process, but we wanted to do it in such a way we could study it and look for regularities and patterns. And we did that by filming them each doing their own solo adaptation seven times. So as many times as we could really manage. And here you'll see, for example, this is Roz, one of the dancers. So she's just begun the work. And you'll see she began from different places in the space. And this first section is called Fred and Ginger. It's a kind of warm-up. It, it has specific instructions, but it's a little, which are a little vague, but they're just warming up to this space. But if you'll see, one of her versions is just about there, far on the left, stop, and has finished the first section while these other ones are continuing. Now she's begun right there walking across the center, she's begun the next section. So this is how it would unfold. If, I, if we just played these overlays for you without any um, sort of time realignment, you would just see them keep performing and you'd have no idea which, where, which section they were in. Um, you know, whether they started section four or five, they might be. So you couldn't, if from our perspective, it would be difficult to study it somehow, analyze it. So, but it's, it's, um, it's important maybe to note that if you ask them, if you stop them and ask them at any moment where they are in the score, they know exactly where they are. 
So this is what kind of constitutes the choreography in a sense. So Deborah would say this is not improvisation, it's really choreographed. So to do, <coughs> to do our data collection work, we had a, uh, the, the shot you just saw is from one of these cameras, I can't remember, maybe that one, probably this one actually. And then we had these two side cameras. And the two side cameras, you might have noticed we're working with silhouettes, so we're kind of green screening this and we're pulling the, pulling the um, silhouettes out. And here you'll see what we're able to do with the, with the two cameras at these angles is to extract the, the 3D just by keeping an eye on the highest pixel and you get the pathway. Um, and we were interested in that pathway because if you get them all together and just lay them on top of each other, this is all 21 versions all laid on top of each other and you get just spaghetti. There's very, no indication really of what's happening in terms of regularities or patterns you might see except the hot spot in the center. There's an explanation for that maybe, but in order to study it more effectively, we had annotated, using an annotation tool, the beginning of each section. So once we annotated the beginning of each section for each one of the uh, adaptations, these are the, um, the names of each section. These are the kinds of names that they would use. In fact, if you asked Deborah, hey, if the piece had sections, she would kind of go, hmm, no, it, you know, for her, sec sections weren't important, but if you listen to them in the studio, you realize they're referring to, uh, you know, ancient voice, that's that part. And once that we got a hold of that, we asked them if we could use those sections for, to let us break up the spaghetti into different pieces. So here we've broken it up into different, the different sections and right away you begin to see more regularities. And one of the things that it, it allows you to maybe ask, you could ask the kind of a question like this, you could say, well, how is it these three, these three dancers practice that work on their own for three months with no instructions and yet they come out performing things that are, seem relatively similar? It's one of the kinds of questions it might let you ask. It also shows that there are patterns that emerge. It also, makes, it also made it possible for us to, again, working with overlays. This is Janine and Roz, because Juliet didn't do the first part, so she shows up later. And you'll see, you're looking at the same figures of Roz you just saw earlier. So you will see that one figure eventually end up on the corner over there, finishing this Fred and Ginger section. And then she's going to pause, because we can pause the video there, exactly the annotation. And then the other one pause, so we're able to actually realign the time in the video so that you, well, they're all waiting. They're not really waiting, I mean, there's no, but they're waiting because we pause the video stream, pause that video pathway until they all catch up, and then they go on to the next section. So we can look at that section, all of them together, and say something about it. Janine kind of keeps going, I think she, She's still going and it takes a while for she stop. And then the next section, suddenly Juliet will appear. So what's my next? Oh, yes. So in addition to this sort of data, you know, kind of extracting data, pathways, 3D, trying to do things with it, we also, on the, on the website, so you can go to these kinds of... Uh, the Motion Bank website has all of this material that I'm showing you now on the website, so you can go and study it if you wish. Um, what we did is we created a, a, a page which has insights from the performer. We, at, we invited Janine to watch herself performing in the video, so it's kind of if you're, it's like video elicitation, or you, 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 they watch and then they comment on what's happening. So that, and we tried to then um, align that with Deborah's text, because of course each section Move, the whole piece moves one section to the next section, and to place a small bit of writing that gives you an insight into what she's doing as she performs, the kinds of decisions she's making. So the sort of text you get from her is you get little mini explanations in a way. So I'm trying to keep all the balls in the air. I'm priming myself to the space. And these concepts, priming and all the balls, are things you can learn more about in other interviews on the website. <laughs> So our idea was to provide a big composite pool of information that would give you different ways into Deborah's process. 
But this one is, of course, particularly related to the body of the performer and how they're, how they're describing what they're doing as they move through. So it's, the data is of a different order here, I would say, or you could even call it data, but you might. So let's see. All right. Is that, I'm moving fairly quickly, but I think it's probably clear enough. So we're really, in a way, I'm trying to bring you through a couple of projects that lasted a number of years, but to bring you sort of, sort of closer to this idea, we have this digitized material, we have this dance data. And we've been doing things with it. So we've been doing things that are in these projects, we've been doing things with it to help people understand structures, and, but also producing more abstract things with it. And at the end of the Motion Bank project, the first phase, uh, we're now in a second, third phase, I guess, um, we started running these things called choreographic coding labs. And here, it was the idea that we would take the data we'd collected and offer it to creative coders in hack lab, hackathon-like things to, um, and these are just kind of boring, quick representations of things that look like data, graphs and uh, graphics and things. Um, and we've done, there's kind of a website for choreographic coding, which, and these are all the labs that we've done from 2013. So we've done them kind of all over the place. And importantly, they were envisioned to be opportunities to give uh, creative coders a chance to work with choreographic ideas. Like how would they bring choreographic thinking into their own practice? So the desire was to somehow in, in, interest them, not in just the data, the movement data or the pathway data, but somehow interest them in the nature of the decision making that happens when somebody's performing, like Janine. So we would offer them the data, which meant also the insights, you know, and, the, um, and they would work in, you know, they would, this is an example from Berlin, so this kind of hack lab environment is familiar to a lot of you. Um, there's enough room, so a bit of moving is happening. But it was really focused on coders first. And some people sometimes wondered, you know, you know, why wouldn't you bring more dancers together? And some would bring dancers. But we really wanted to inject kind of choreographic ideas into the coding community and let them work together, which they do extremely well. They, they have their tools. They can hack things. And they've been very... You know, they've been great in many ways. And I have anecdotes of when moments when a coder just puts the computer down because they've just begun to understand what Deborah Hay is doing and the, 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 the importance of the body and body knowledge, and they just stop. And, they, and, those are, and so there are anecdotes like that. Not everybody, but I think to a degree, I, I would say that I and we were happy with these environments. They're very generative. They're very um, supportive. And they're in the art world, in a way. They're still kind of in the art world. They're not in engineering. They're not in computing science. They're sort of still in this space of cultural space where people are making things. And they're making labs. People are making things. So that's important. Um, there is another community, the movement and computing community, um, who are also interested in integrating dance, kind of movement, dance knowledge into compu computing, computational contexts. But they're a bit more interested and open to working with engineering, computing science, uh, into more interdisciplinary in that sense. And they've had several conferences. Um, and I think, you know, generally I think people are sincerely interested in movement. They're sincerely interested in physicality and corporeality and the body, even as they bring their machine learning skills or whatever they have to the table. If it, generally, the community is, 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 is set up and envisioned to kind of embrace that together. So that, that's really what I wanted to sort of share with you as a sort of arc a kind of arc where projects working with dancers, and we've, you know, I think you can see we've really been collecting data. We're not doing motion capture and fancy animations. We're really trying to stay close to the heart of the matter, which is the choreographic work and the understanding of the dancers involved, but still generate documents that others can study, learn from, and data that others can use creatively. And here, I think um, there's a there's a genuine interest in 
taking that understanding into other areas of computing science and engineering, especially human-computer interface design, where there's a lot of interest in bodies moving. But so in a way, you could say, I could close off this talk now and say, you know, it's not a bad picture. It's somehow it's connecting, you know, moving bodies and people who are computing and, and generating things. And there's a... Um, so I could stop now and say, what do you think? It looks great. But um, I've been busy for a couple of years. Um, and this is what I... Kind of trying to reboot this, uh, this project a little bit. And I'm going to share some stuff with you and see what you think about what's been showing up for me. And here's where I get completely out of my area of expertise. But I've tried to focus it a bit on a few things that I think will be familiar to you and won't surprise you. But I'm kind of hoping we can, I'm kind of hoping to maybe bring you into the space that I'm thinking about. And it has something to do with knowledge. It definitely has something to do with the nature of embodied knowledge and the, the, the knowing that happens through doing and the role of skills, physical, body-based skills. We'll get to that in a minute. So here's, here's where I'm. So you're, you're aware, I'm sure you're aware, that AI and society, AI and ethics, so there's a frenzy of funding schemes worldwide supporting research into the ethical dimension of these new systems, AI in particular. Robotics included, of course. I mean, that's the robots, robotics, AI, different surveillance systems, anything like that. And to me, I, I mean, I was aware of it, but I suddenly started looking around. There are huge conferences, you know, AI and health. And, um, and so I just put, picked one. I just started one place. The Volkswagen Foundation's AI and Society Program, 1.5 million per project, up to, I think they're in their third round. And um, going to the website and looking at their newsletter, I found an interview with this woman, Ami uh, Weinsberger, uh, Van Weinsberger, um, about her foundation for responsible robotics. So Amy and a couple of other people started that in 2015 for ethical design and production of robots. And then I was um, kind of poking around and found, found a piece of writing about, by her about care robots. Um, and there she mentions at one place, so I do things like search on the word body in the article. And in there she mentions uh, um, nurses' uh, bodies, that, that, that nurses who work with technologies. So in a way she's saying this, this discussion of ethics is clearly not anti-technological, anti-technology, because they work with technology a lot as a kind of extensions. And from what I could tell, and she, she talks about the kinds of skills that they acquire working with, and I'm I'm guessing she means various instruments and things, physical things, things they move with their hands and things that, that become part of their body because of the, also we, under, we know from studying that you know, at some point, like the pencil, the end of the pencil, the end of the walking cane, all of those developments in, in helping us understand that those extensions are really absorbed somehow, assimilated into the body. So I believe she's talking about this kind of skill, but she doesn't, mention the body. Beyond that, there's no discussion of that kind of knowledge, that kind of skill-based knowledge. It sort of moves into more social circumstances, you know, kind of relations. It's okay. It's good. It's, I think it's in the right direction. It is asking fundamental questions. She's using various models and approaches. But in the interview that she did with the Volkswagen Foundation, she's talking about one of these da Vinci systems, which are it's unbelievably extraordinary um, technology for uh, telesurgery. And, um, and she's, in the interview, she, she's explaining why she became interested in ethics, because she was speaking to some people who were using the system and just was asking them and realized that they're not even looking at the patient's body. So this doesn't sound, you, you say, well, of course, it's telesurgery, so they're learning. But I'm looking for signs of something a bit. And I think I'm seeing it. I think I'm seeing that although there's a huge amount of focus on ethics and, 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 and relationships, this knowing, this knowledge, the focus on knowledge is kind of different. So the focus on knowledge that you really acquire through doing and it's very body-based, to, to me appears to be missing. Um, there's another guy named Ron, Rob, Rolf uh, Pfeiffer. So 
who wrote an article called Embodied Artificial Intelligence a number of years ago. He's a roboticist, pretty well known. And he was really pitching for this idea of the intelligent body, sort of from the bottom up, really looking for that to be a very clear part of the artificial intelligence landscape. And it is. I mean, if you look around, you find that AI people are working with this kind of idea of embodied artificial intelligence. And he wrote a book, How the Body Shapes the Way We Think, a new view of intelligence and the roboticist Rodney Brooks, he, he, he really pushes in the, in the for, forward how different this thinking is for most people in computing science, the centrality of the body for intelligence. And then Brooks is like, he says, you know, uh, Pfeiffer is assaulting assumptions about that we make in the engineering field. So it looks good, you know, it kind of looks, looks good. Except the idea of embodied artificial intelligence shows up in about 19,000 other articles. And I just had the feeling, you know, when I looked at this one, I thought, yeah, but they're so far from embodiment. They're so far from the body. You know, they're, they're talking about relationships, but they've kind of left it behind somehow, and I just don't see it showing up. Um, this is the last slide. Huge report, like 100 pages from new, from the Alan Turing Institute about understanding artificial intelligence, ethical safety. It's pretty extraordinary. I think... I'm guessing some of you may have even seen it. But they've got really interesting ways of describing like alternative epistemologies. That word never shows up in there. <laughs> but they have really, so when I read counterfactual fairness tests for sensitive groups, they're actually talking about different kinds of, I mean, I think from my, I have to, I have to admit, you know, su pretty superficial reading. But my feeling is they're talking about different cultures, really, different ways of thinking, different epistemologies, if you're aware of the, Portuguese sociologist Boaventura de Sousa Santos, he's written a book called The Epistemologies of the South, which isn't the geographic South. It's other ways of knowing that are, are not acknowledged and have no status. Um, steps to ensuring human-centered implementation. So human-centered, do they, what? Uh, I, I don't see anything, again, where the body is really seemingly missing here. And then the three phases of the content life cycle, which I liked. I'm sorry these are all out of context. You can download it, super easy to find. But it's a big graphic that says, translate human values in, data processing, translate values out. And the notion of extraction, just, it's just, you know, kind of extract the values, put them in. This is all important work, so I'm not trying to diminish the work at all. I think it's essential. And governments see this, and I think it's really essential. I'm just looking at where I think the body is missing. And because we were working with these, these dance projects where we were kind of extracting dance knowledge, and this is where my reboot is maybe is creeping back in. We were doing this work thinking that once we do that and then produce the document, the knowledge is kind of in the document. You know, in other words, okay, it's on the page, it's on the website, people can visit the website. And I even several, many times would say the the goal was to try to share these ideas with people in the absence of the body. Because I thought the ideas were so valuable in dance. And that if you were only restricted to understanding them by virtue of being in the space with the person, I thought that was a shame somehow. It should be that these could be. And I still think that. So I'm not, re I'm not abandoning the idea that you can make these, uh, these things clear and interesting for people in the absence of the body. But I'm really, I'm really rethinking a little bit the notion of that, what that absence might mean. And I, you'll see, you'll, you would have picked up that I sense the absence in this ethics work around AI. And the direction I'm going in myself, because I'm looking now for some ground, and I think I've found some of the ground, not grounded theory, but ground for theory, and I'm looking at anthropology. And Giles knows that we, we work together with some of these people. And I'm looking at the a subfield within anthropology, the anthropology of knowledge. And I'm looking at people like Tim Ingold, who is one of the most prolific writers around this kind of work. And also a colleague of ours, James Leach, who just gave a talk at the British Museum um, on Monday about, um, with some really interesting ideas that resonate with this notion that, that, that that, that the knowledge is not in the document, the knowledge is in the process of creating the document, for example. So, I said the last slide, but I'll, I'll stop with this one here. I just pulled out a few quotes. 
Trevor Marchand, oh, I'm sorry. This is a very, Trevor, I didn't really mention Trevor. He, he did a project, an, e, um, an ESRC project. He was working at SOAS, the School for Oriental and African Studies, called Making Knowledge. And again, Trevor and all of these individuals, as well as others, not, a, not dozens and dozens. I mean, I feel like it's, it, I don't know how you feel, Giles. It's a little, there's a handful of people who are working very hard on theorizing, in a sense, but also through doing the nature of the knowledge that's in doing, that's in bodies, that's complex, that's continuous, that cannot be extracted. And I think push back, or at least could push something into this space with the AI and ethics, if bodies were more present. Um, I don't think we need to, I won't go through these, but they're the kind of, just pulling out a few, uh, a few quotes. So I think that it's um, 20, I think that's, uh, that's really what I wanted to share with you. Um, and I want to thank you for letting me share it because I'm really, I'm kind of excited. I'm kind of, I'm daunted a little bit. I think there's really an opportunity. It, uh, partly there's an opportunity to, to. And I'd love to hear, um, we have to, we're, on, we're streaming, so Annalisa will bring the mic around if you have questions or um, any thoughts or questions or comments or um, we, could, we could talk a little bit about that. Um, and we can we can we can wait a little bit. Don't <laughs> <laughs> no rush. Um. Thank you very much. It was all really interesting. Um, does anyone wants to ask the first question? Or if we have um, some questions from our online audience? Yeah, I've got a question. Yeah, sure. How do people um, in the world of dance uh, react when you talk about? data or if you talk about sort of cataloging um, data about movement in yeah. general? Um, that's a, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think generally the, um, generally if, if I'm given an opportunity to explain things a bit more there, but it's not unusual for the first reaction to be um, concerned a little bit about, um, you know, what can't be documented, for example. But increasingly we're seeing especially with the ubiquitous video devices and existence that video is used all the time. So it's young dancers in the studios, they video, they up to the tube with one button and then they send a link to colleagues and say, take a look at this or learn this. And I don't think we, we have, nobody's studied that. And, and, but I suspect that it's pretty, pretty, pretty ubiquitous and prevalent in the, in the practice. That's kind of interesting. Um, but the, oh, sorry, I had a train of thought. Anyway, um, data, yes, how they feel about data. Yeah, it does vary. It does, it can vary. Oh, we have, Thank sorry, you. No, we come there. Sorry. <laughs> um, okay. The objective of the work that you had, I don't think it's working, is it? Uh, yeah, you just It's online, it. it's for oh. people online. Yeah. Not yeah. for us. For people online. Thank you. <laughs> uh, uh, the objective of the, 90, uh, the previous researches that were done, the uh, body motion data and uh, um, the following one, they were made for shareability, for people to understand what they do in the studio. Who were, you, who were their audiences? I think that um, the question here that I have is who are your audiences? Because our audiences are very segmented, as you mentioned in the last comment mm. uh, about data, because I'm, I'm, I'm moving from one thing to the other. And it would be really interesting to see what was the objective of this shareability at the beginning and who is dealing with it at the moment, because even the way um, uh, with the no time to fly when we look at the work and the comments on the website, the comments of one dancer about her work, who has seen that, who is it for? And I think in order to get to your question about AI and embodiment, it's really looking at the, what the dance world wants to get out of that mm. and how do they communicate with Tom, Dick and Harriet in order to make that more accessible or not? And, and I think there's a lot of levels of mm. interference there or interaction or interjections. 
And in order to go to the AI, the question is, how will the dance world deal with this data to make it more accessible? And what is it accessible for? Mm. And which usage will it have at the end? These are my questions. Well, the, your, it's a good question in terms of who the audiences were. We, um, because we, 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 we assume that, um, that uh, people who, were, who, who had an interest, I mean, the, the one choreographer is quite famous, William Forsythe, so people would have an interest in his work. Would, uh, um, but there we also were interested in stimulating exchanges with other disciplines. Uh, there's been no sort of there's been no study of 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 the people who've you know the kind of communities who've who've been to these sites and visit and do things with it. Um, I think that I used to. I think it's a good question because I I used to think that I used to assume somebody at the other end of the pipeline who was receptive, almost in their bodies, receptive to information, so that they would. I, I think I assume this receptive, feeling, sensing person, a little bit like the creative coders, you know, invite them in, give them an idea that, that we were in, that we were in this relationship somehow without really knowing, I would say. But I think, though, for those of us working on it, we kind of in, imagine that kind of receptivity and, and, and in a way tried to give as much detail what we thought would be possible. But... Um, with the AI, though, I think the, I don't know if it was clear, I, I'm actually, I'm, I think I'm more interested in, the, in these um, projects that are looking at the ethical dimension. So I don't really care about the tech, currently I don't really, not really interested in machine learning or AI. I'm actually interested in the retro, kind of the discourse around the ethical questions that have emerged because I think something is, is missing. And I also question our absent audience, you know, the person to whom we're communicating something, we don't know them. And we, so I'm questioning that as well. So in a way, I'm, I mean, we're continuing to document, so I'm not just stopping things, but the questions are different, and, um, and that is one of them. Um, we have one question here first. Uh, so my question, you sort of defined the problem quite well when you talked about telepresence, and that was a kind of nub of your kind of realisation, was that these uh, kind of surgery was happening without a, um, a sensing of the body. Uh, I mean, that's what I'm getting out of it anyway. I'm just wondering if there's any uh, technological solution to that. Uh, are, you, are you regressing? Because you, part of your... Um, the, the start of your talk, we're looking at all these fantastic kind of technological interventions into understanding choreography and dance. Yeah. And it seems like now, and it's not a bad thing necessarily to retreat from that and to yeah. start questioning the ethics of it, but could there be any technical, technological uh, solution or intervention that allows you to do the thing that you are talking about? Thank you. Good question. I think that you made me... I think that... Um, uh, one of the things I noticed from 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 Amy's, so I had a couple of other quotes that one, at the end of one of her papers, she wrote that the interdisciplinary collaboration for the research should include designers, engineers, programmers, psychologists, and philosophers. So I'm not anti-technology, but I I wonder what would happen if the team included the social anthropologists I was just mentioning, sort of a different mix. Of, of collaborators that could bring knowledge together and AI people. So that would be, um, then I don't know whether there would be a, a solution for it, but it might be that um, one of the things, one of my impressions with also with Rolf Pfeiffer's uh, embodied artificial intelligence, that the, the idea of the body is, a, is, a, is very Western. So it's cognitive, you know, it's biomechanic. And so I have a question, what if there were other perceptions of fluids and things that... And it's not to be politically correct as much as just curious about these other ways of... Because I'm, I'm interested in what gets 
lost as well, what, what, what things recede, you know, different practices. We know practices, languages, you know, we, we know things are, are, are disappearing as a result of globalization, homogenization, and technology plays a role there. So maybe I'm looking to interject some you know, bit of friction in there around body-based, skills-based practices. And that would let us in the dance world find co-relation, co in a way, cooperation with other fields of skill-based, body-based practices. Um, so there could be. Maybe, I, maybe it's just a desire to see what can inform those developments. So it's not rolling, in a way it's rolling back some of my claims for the dance projects, that they, they communicate these things at a distance, to roll back and say what's happening. And in fact, I am doing that more. I'm looking more closely at what's happening in the studio, and we're, and we're using very simple ways of documenting that process. And Anyway, thank you for the question. Thanks, Scott. It's really thought-provoking and almost difficult to come up with the question because it's such a big thought that you've put in my head. Um, but I'd just like, very simply, if you could say a little bit more about what concerns you about the absence of the body in the AI ethics conversation. If you could maybe spell that out for those of us who aren't, you know, movement specialists. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I suppose I would, I would, I think the... Um, that the understanding which some of the anthropologists I've been looking at and interacting with of the kind of attunement of the body to its environment um, is so refined and so complex that, that modeling it, um, abstracting kind of or extracting things from that state are conceivably impossible. I mean, it's, I mean anyway, they might be impossible, but, but I guess that what I'm interested in is whether the space of the um, imagination around what the, what the body brings in relation to other bodies, but something about the intelligence of uh, this kind of intelligence, it simply doesn't seem to be permeating the questions about uh, you know, the ethics, uh, uh, the, the, the moral principles that govern our behavior and our actions, which is ethics in relation to AI. So, I, so in a way, I don't see that body permeating that discussion in a way that I think it could. Um, and because some of these knowledges, as I just mentioned, are being lost, and that's trackable. So there are indigenous cultures who have particular ways of doing things in particular environments, who, whose, whose practices are changing and disappearing. Or there's basket-making cultures in Scotland that, that who's, there's one person that knows how to make such and such a basket anymore. And that's a little bit stark as an, an example of something being lost, but I think there's something there. I think, I don't know, the, the narrative of loss is a little tricky. So I'm not sure I would predicate on a narrative of loss, but nevertheless things, you know, I don't know if that's helpful, Hannah, but it's something in that, in that area. We have another question. Thank you. Thank you for an interesting presentation. Uh, I'm not familiar, so I will introduce myself. I'm Zahaye, and I'm a second-year PhD student at Coventry University. And my topic is actually what uh, Professor... Scott is talking. I'm specializing uh, in, I'm studying the application of virtual reality, augmented reality, artificial intelligence, and big data on the transmission of culture and performative data of the human body. So I'm coming, uh, my question is from the concern of the AI issue you raised, and basically what uh, it's being called dance data. Mm. So uh, here, uh, there are two. For example, I can give you as an example, my MA is especially uh, in dance studies, anthropology of dance, ethnochronology, and heritage, how th they are. So my also MA is in phenomenology. Now I'm transforming to post-phenomenological understanding. Mm. So what I want to ask you is, there is a kind of huge uh, miscommunication between especially people who are working in phenomenology, in anthropology, in technology by itself in relation. So there is a sense of isolation for me. I feel like dance is alien to human beings. 
because it's situated in culture. Dance data is cultural data. So we have to resituate, actually, if we're going to talk about dance in the context, also its benefit, its economic implications, then we should be able to resituate dance in the cultural context, mm. even if it's artistic. In the end, art is also related to human culture. So what I uh, want to talk about is especially the issue of embodiment and disembodiment. Mm. Yes, there are arguments in since classical philosophy, there is about disembodiment issue, embodiment, how especially since the 17th century, there is the split Cartesian dualism, split between mind and body. But if you look at history, at our, even primates, as from an evolutionary account, there is the relationship between dance and technology from philosophical account, if you go to ancient Greece. So there, there is art imitates nature, whether it's dance, whether it's artifact. So, and also art completes what nature cannot. So the sense of, for example, that we are engaged at dance is somehow isolated from technology and that the body is being threatened. This was addressed actually in the 1990s by Cheryl Dodds, who actually theorized screen, dance of the screen. She was talking about technophobic and technophilic kind of discourse. So I agree with you about this over-optimism of being people who are working on artificial intelligence considering AI as disembodied or virtual reality as disembodied. In that sense, I totally agree we should raise ethical questions. Mm. But when we're raising ethical questions also, it's, not, it's important to know what, what these technologies are, not from a distance and say the view. That was Martin Heidegger's view, other classes, theorists of philosophy of technology view. So what we have to do is, we can address ethical questions while the things, the technology by itself, the artifact is being designed. Mm -hmm. In this sense, we can address that question. Mm -hmm. And I applaud you for your courage, actually. <laughs> this is a wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Do we have any more questions? Or oh, if we want to take any questions from our audience? OK. Well, Ben. I think we're done for today. Thank you very much for okay, the really interesting talk yeah. and for the really interesting questions. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.